If you would, please stand for a reading of the word. Today's scripture will be on page 491 of the Bibles that are in front of you. And we'd just like to remind you that if you do not have a Bible and you would like one, those are for you. Please feel free to take one home. This is the word of God. Mark 6, chapter 1 through 6, or Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and um, Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that we would be instructed by it this morning, that we would learn from the astonishment of the people in Nazareth. And Lord, even more that we would be, we would learn from their offense. And Lord, that we would take notice of their unbelief. Lord, we pray that we would be spared by the sufficiency of your word from a similar unbelief. Lord, we pray that we would look to you, that we would cling to you, that we would hope in you, O God. Not just as a mark of our religious affiliation in a free nation, but Lord, that we would be slaves of Christ, that we would be servants of the Most High, that we would sell our lives at the cost of a cross, Lord. So we ask all this in the sweet and precious name that is above all other names. Amen. You can be seated. So we were going through the book of Mark, and last week in Mark's narrative, he had Jesus healing the sick and even raising the dead in kind of a a twofer, a a story with two amazing uh, results. And, and this was all done in Capernaum, Capernaum, which we know Jesus had a home there. He had taught in the synagogue there. He had performed many, many of his miracles there. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Capernaum had been kind of the centerpiece, the, the primary location of this story. And today we find that Jesus has relocated to 25 miles southwest of the city of Capernaum to his hometown, his childhood home of Capernaum, uh, I'm sorry, of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, we know uh, of mostly because it was the childhood home of Jesus. But in its day, Nazareth was a tiny, off-the-beaten-path town that that wasn't on any major thoroughfares in the ancient world. It wasn't on any trade routes. You you didn't go to Nazareth unless you were going to Nazareth. No one went through Nazareth. 
Nazareth was, uh, was just a little village out in the middle of nowhere, so it would seem. It probably never had more than 500 residents at any time. It was the kind of town, perhaps some of you grew up in such a town, where everybody knew everyone. In towns like that, you may recall, if you did grow up in a town like that, that nobody's business is really private, is it? But it's public domain for speculation, public domain for gossip. The town, however, did have its own synagogue. And as we talked in the first chapter, that was an accomplishment. It was something there were requirements to have your own synagogue. And, and, and they had one. The synagogue was the primary gathering place for the men of the village. And they would go there to hear the scriptures expounded. They would go there and settle community disputes. It was particularly important on the Sabbath day because that's where it served, or on that day it served as a place of worship, a place to meditate communally on the scriptures. And so the, 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 the synagogue really was the centerpiece of their community. Matthew and Mark and Luke all, uh, all record stories of Jesus' visits to the synagogue in Nazareth. And they tell us, each one of them tell us, uh, at least Matthew and Mark tell about the same story. Matthew and Mark tell a different story from Luke. But they tell us that none of his visits to his hometown synagogue were without controversy. In, in the visit recorded here by Mark that we just read, the people react to Jesus in three different ways. They react to him first with astonishment. And then from there, they actually re- respond to him with offense. And then lastly, they respond to him with unbelief. And we're going to examine each of those responses to Jesus by the people of Nazareth in turn. So let's take a look at this astonishment first. In Nazareth on the Sabbath day, Jesus probably had been there for a few days, perhaps visiting with his family. But when it comes to the Sabbath day, Jesus makes his way to the synagogue and begins teaching. This wasn't odd. Uh, visiting rabbis were often uh, uh, asked to expound upon the passage that, that was read that morning. And so Jesus makes his way to the synagogue and begins teaching. Luke tells us that being in the synagogue on the Sabbath day was his custom. Now let's not blow past that point. Think about this. Though Christ was God and though Christ was the author of Scripture, and because he was the author, he was the perfect interpreter of Scripture, he still made it a priority to gather with the people of God, with other worshipers each Sabbath to hear the word of God presented. So if Jesus saw such importance, if he raised to such a high level the sitting under the word of God with other worshipers, I wonder what valid excuses you and I can offer for our own occasional or habitual neglect uh, neglect of being in with the people of God, hearing the word of God. Now, as Jesus began to teach from the scriptures, all of a sudden there was a rumbling in the crowd. There was, there was some, some whispering and some talking that was, that was obvious. 
Well, while he was yet speaking, many who heard him began to notice that there was something unique about his teaching. There was something altogether different. Now, remember that those in the synagogue in the first chapter in, in, in Capernaum, uh, remember what they said about Jesus's teaching? Mark one twenty two, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark uses the same word here in chapter 6, and he tells us that they were astonished as they heard Jesus. Now, let me just say this. Astonishment for fallen creatures like ourselves is the right response to hearing the words of Jesus. Amen? It's the right response We should all be struck with astonishment at his wisdom, at his grace, at his compassion, and at his power. But the astonishment of Nazareth was different than that in Capernaum because it was based not on the freshness of what they were hearing, but what they already knew of Christ. And so they say, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now think about what they're saying there. They had had Christ in their midst during his childhood, during his adolescence, during his young adult years. And it made them feel qualified to analyze, to judge, to assess his ministry and these reports they were getting of his power in other places. When they heard his words and the wisdom flowing out of him, they did not deny it. They didn't accuse him of making up empty philosophies or or vain teachings. They called it wisdom. But their problem came because they couldn't discern where this wisdom came from. The, The rabbis in that day, we talked a little bit about this earlier in the series, the rabbis in that day would instruct their pupils beginning often in their childhood or teenage years, But they knew, these people sitting in that synagogue that day, they knew, absolutely knew, that Jesus had no such benefit of an education like that. They had seen him doing common labor all of his life, working in his father's shop. And their question formed in their minds, what had happened in the short time since his departure from Nazareth that made him now so profound and so eloquent about the mysteries of the kingdom of God? This change in the level of his intellect did not make sense to them. See, but the truth is that nothing had actually changed. Jesus' true identity, veiled in flesh, had just not been revealed yet, as he had said at times that his time had not yet come. So Jesus, in their midst, had simply lived a mundane normal life in this one horse town called Nazareth. But now, now reports are coming in. Reports come from Capernaum, from the Gadarenes, other spots around the Sea of Galilee, that he not only teaches with authority, but that he had been healing the sick, that he had been casting out unclean spirits, that he had even been raising the dead. 
How could they ever account for such a show of power from someone with such, uh, with such unimpressive beginnings? See, they're difficult. Their difficulty came because they were hyper-focused on the veil of his flesh. They saw only his humanity. They saw him as he was subject to his parents. They saw him working with his hands. They saw him when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was weary. They saw his lack of a formal education. And what they, the, the, their critical mistake was that they neglected to ask any further questions or to do any investigation to know him better. But see, what should have happened in their astonishment, it should have led them to look deeper and to wonder whether this wisdom and these amazing works signified a deeper reality that he was more than a man. That something divine was in their midst. That someone divine was standing among them. Now it's easy for me and you, 2,000 years later, to criticize these villagers. Those silly Nazarenes. But, to ha- but have we let our initial astonishment with the reality of who Jesus is, weighing into this over-analysis of him? Have we started to define him by our emotional or cultural prejudices instead of conforming our thoughts of him to what is revealed about him in the Holy Scriptures? See, that's what we do when we are willing to soften Jesus' un flinching approach to sin and to judgment. Or when we try to transform him into some kind of social justice warrior instead of the ruler of the entire cosmos. See, Jesus will not conform to our demands or our assessments. And and Jesus' uniqueness, Jesus' holiness, the, the definition of Jesus in the Scriptures is what leads us to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is exactly who he reveals himself to be, who he has always has been and always will be. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Societal shifts do not phase Jesus. If anybody ever tells you that Christianity has somehow become archaic, they are the ones who have changed. Jesus has never changed. He has stood rock solid. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Personal biases do not concern him. He is who the Bible says he is. The Yahweh. I am that I am. Now, let's consider for a moment their offense. See, as they considered these things, they didn't investigate deeply the words or the works of Jesus They recalled the Jesus that they knew in days gone by. Is this not the carpenter? 
the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? What they heard from his lips and the stories of his power and compassion were immediately drowned in the the recollection of the teacher's humble beginnings. They began by calling him the carpenter. Now, they weren't insulting his blue-collar roots. Probably everyone in that synagogue came from the same working class. They were saying that to come into their synagogue and try to teach them as though he was something more seemed a little uppity, a little self-important. Who was he to come lecture them about God's kingdom? He's the carpenter, for goodness sakes. It wasn't unusual for a rabbi to have a trade. In fact, it was encouraged. Paul, the world's most brilliant theologian, was a tent maker. Their problem was that they only saw Jesus as a carpenter. They weren't willing to humble themselves. They weren't willing to listen to his words. And so they disqualified him on the nature of his vocation. But had they understood, they would have thanked God that this man standing before them was a carpenter. See, if you go back to Genesis 3, after mankind falls and God is is issuing curses on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, this is what he says to Adam. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. See, if Christ had descended from heaven and lived in a palace, if he had never been a laborer, how could he have been understood as fully human by those among whom he lived? Facing all the troubles, all the hardships, all the temptations that work brings us. See, work, until it's redeemed by the saving life of Christ, work is a part of the curse under which mankind, fallen mankind, must endure. But see, Jesus came into the world fully human to bear our sorrows, Isaiah tells us. He came to be fully acquainted with our grief. So even when work creates trials and hardships and temptations for you, you can know that he did it too. He worked with his hands in his father's shop. He probably didn't make enough money some weeks. Jesus labored just as we labor. But the people of Nazareth missed the beauty of this reality. They despised him in their hearts because of his apparent commonness and his lack of sophistication. They missed the proverbial forest for the trees. They didn't trust in his goodness or his ability to save. Instead, he was the simple, lowly carpenter. But they weren't done. Next they called him the son of Mary. Now, it's quite uncommon for men in Israel to be referred to in relation to their mothers. In Aramaic, Jesus would have been referred to as Jesus bar Joseph, which means Jesus, the son of Joseph. Why then did the people of Nazareth call him the son of Mary? Well, there were 
older ones in the crowd who could think back about 30 years prior to this point. And they remembered that time when Mary, the teenager, became pregnant while she was betrothed to Joseph. Scandal. Eventually, Mary and Joseph got married, which just added to the scandal. And they, and they had the audacity to bring this seemingly illegitimate child into their community. And that's when the gossip started. How could this man, who according to them had sprung from such a scandalous origin, have anything to say to them? He sounded wise, and the reports coming in from the other cities were certainly amazing. But at the root, in their minds, he was still nothing more than the bastard son of an unwed mother. The shadow of this scandal in Nazareth could not be lifted. But see, their arrogance came in the fact that there were things they did not know. They didn't know how the angel Gabriel had visited his mother. They didn't know when the pregnant Mary went and visited the pregnant Elizabeth, her cousin, how Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, leapt in the womb at the sound of her greeting. They didn't hear the angelic choir that night in in Bethlehem saying, Peace on earth! Goodwill to those to whom God's fa- on whom God's favor rests. They didn't see as divinely guided princes of foreign lands brought expensive gifts simply to commemorate his birth. In their sneering judgmentalism and hypocrisy, they blinded their eyes to this visit from the one who had been sent to save them from their sins. Lastly, they said, don't we know his brothers? Don't his sisters live here with us? Besides the obvious destruction this verse does to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, why are Christ's brothers and sisters referenced by the people of Nazareth? Well, to understand that, we need to look elsewhere in the Gospels. If you were to look at John 7, 5, you would read these words. Not even his brothers believed in him. What possible credibility could Christ have in Nazareth if even his brothers were waffling on his claims? If they were so embarrassed by him, why would the people of his city have any incentive to anchor their hopes for truth or salvation in his words? Do you remember what we read back in Mark chapter 3? Verse 21 says his family went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Surely their concerns had been expressed freely among the people of Jesus' hometown. What effect did that have in his village? If I can make a point of application... When we are speaking openly of Jesus in the public arena, the scriptures alone should set the boundaries of what we say. If we intermingle the name of Christ 
with our own speculations or extra-biblical interpretations of his person and character, we will be responsible for people's misunderstanding of him. See, you never have to say, this is what what I, I want to encourage you in, you never have to say ever, I think Jesus is like this or Jesus is like that because God has given us the Bible to tell us exactly what Jesus is like. There's no speculation necessary. The Bible has made it clear who he is, what he does, his nature, his character, his holiness. It's all laid out for you. You don't need to speculate about Jesus. All we have to do is trust. And my, how difficult that is for us sometimes. But all we have to do is trust what the Bible teaches us. And if we can't do that in in relation to Jesus, we should just keep silent. So they were astonished. But now the result of their own speculation and analysis was that the once astonished people became offended by Christ. The Bible says in the passage we read that they were offended in him. It didn't matter how liberating the truths he spoke were, how miraculous the power he wielded was. The hearts of the Nazarenes were tightly shut. He didn't pass their test of who they thought he should be, so they disregarded him entirely, hardening themselves towards him. And so in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. The old saying rings true right here in the scripture. Familiarity breeds contempt. The people's assumption, now listen to this, this is the key point of everything I want to say to you this morning. The people's assumptions about what they knew of Christ barred them from actually knowing Christ. And it seems after this story that Jesus never again entered his hometown of Nazareth. As a pastor, you can only imagine people frequently express disagreement with some position that I have taken. And sincerely, I appreciate the opportunity to address their concerns. But it's rare that people will argue the opposing viewpoint from the scriptures. They'll usually say things like, that hurt my feelings, or that sounded harsh, but never do they crack the Bible to show me how I have, you know, defied what the scripture says. But shouldn't we all, myself included, make scripture and scripture alone the final arbiter of our disputes? Shouldn't we all stand under the, the, uh, the, the judgment seat of scripture and let it decide right and wrong for us? I mean, does that... Does that sound reasonable to you? Two of you? Man, we got to do a lot of work on Sola Scriptura, Dave. A whole lot. Shouldn't our goal always be to know the mind of Christ? And not our own passions and feelings and, and, and opinions? Those are worthless! But the Word of God... Stands, the Bible says, forever. I love the um, 19th century preacher, Alexander McLaren. Everybody should read McLaren. 
And McLaren said this, he said, salvation is at bottom that a man's will should be harmonized with the will of God. But if a man has not faith in what Jesus has said, his will is discordant with the will of God. And how can it be harmonized and discordant at the same time? What McLaren is saying, do not call yourself a Christian if your will and your, and your thoughts and your, your heart is not increasingly in harmony with the, what the Word of God says. The Word of God defines Christianity, not your religion, not your, your feelings, not your opinions. The Word of God defines what true Christianity is. We must submit to Christ only in the way that he's been revealed in Scripture. So the Nazarene error was that they thought that he was just one of them. No better in any way. They thought that he was of Nazarene origin as opposed to heavenly origin. The result was that their offense that they had with him quickly transformed into unbelief. And the cost of this willful unbelief was unspeakably high. Verse 5 says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now there are times recorded in the Gospels where Jesus did miracles when there was no outward sign of faith. Like when he fed the 5,000. No one asked him to do that. No one believed that he could do it, not even his disciples. Or when he raised the widow's dead son in the city of Nain. Why then do we read here that Jesus could do, not would do, but could do no mighty work there? And this is it simply. Because Jesus will not thrust his goodness upon a people who are so stubbornly hostile towards him and the grace that they so desperately require. This was not an instance like the feeding of the 5,000 or the widow's son of passive lack of belief, but a willful, stubborn, active insistence on unbelief. Roman, uh, Romans one twenty one describes this condition in all of us, all of us who are fallen and not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It says, For although they knew God, like the people at Nazareth, they did not honor Him as God, like the people at Nazareth, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, Jesus often surprises people by intervening even when they weren't actually looking for him because his kindness to us always exceeds our expectations. But he will rarely, if ever, bestow his gifts upon those who question, mock, and disregard his majesty to their own shame and damnation. The guilt of their darkened hearts will rest only upon their heads alone. And yet in spite of this, it seems so negative that Jesus could not do any mighty work there because of the stubborn unbelief of these people. But yet in spite of this, Jesus still <laughs> laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What do we learn from that? Though the majority despised him, a few reached out in faith. And the unrestrained mercy of God was poured out on them. 
So though we live, folks, though we live in a hard-hearted and, and, and cynical time among hard-hearted and cynical people, let us always be found applying to God's mercy in unashamed faith that He hears and responds to us with outpoured grace. Look at the Nazarenes. How short of a journey it is for our sinful hearts to go from astonishment to offense, from offense to unbelief. And verse 6 tells us Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. If I may put it in such a common term, the unbelief of this group of people blew Jesus' mind. The word used for marveled is most used in the gospel to describe people's reaction to Jesus' teachings and his miracles. He would do something amazing and would say that the people marveled. He would say something amazing and say the people marveled. Once this word is used to show Jesus' reaction to someone's faith in him when Jesus healed the centurion's son with just a word, didn't even go lay hands on him. Because the centurion said, I believe you can do that, Jesus. The Bible tells us in Matthew 8.10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel I have found such faith. So he marveled at faith, just like he marveled at unbelief. But here, Jesus is left to wonder at hearts that would reject him because they thought they had him figured out instead of seeing in him everything they actually needed. And he marveled. He was blown away by their self-destructive unbelief. Let me ask you this morning, and may the Spirit of God give you the ability to be painfully honest Where are you today when you think about Christ? Are you astonished by his word and the free offer of his grace? Or do you think that you have him figured out? Perhaps because you've been around his church and his gospel all your life. Are you somehow offended by his call to stop trusting in yourself? And to stop trusting in the counsel of your own mind and to simply trust in Him. Is your heart already beginning to be crusted over with unbelief? Does unbelief cause you to question what you hear about Jesus? Is there no visible, active work of Christ in your heart? Because you've stopped up the fountain of grace by your unbelief. My friend, I'm calling you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you. Return to simple trust in Christ. Repent of your sinful unbelief. And ask that you might again receive his grace. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. God, I pray that you would astonish us again by the power of the effectiveness of your word. God, I pray that you would convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit against our offenses with you, our criticisms of your word, our alterations of your demands, O God. Lord, I pray that we would root out offense by returning in simple trust to what you've told us in the word. God, I pray that you would detonate and devastate all forms of unbelief in this people. God, help us to say like the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to believe in you, God. Scrub out of us every last vestige of our fallenness, our our tendency to look for the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil instead of trusting in your word and your fellowship. Come near to us, Christ, as we, as we abandon all of our best thinking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? Um, I want to just uh, thank you uh, this morning for being here um, and encourage you as we prepare to come to the Lord's table to once, as we always do, is just remind you the power, the importance that this this ordinance, this sacrament has for us who are believers. All of us struggle at times because of our fallen nature with unbelief, maybe even with offense with Christ, but this is an opportunity to us that Christ has given us to renew the covenant and to say no matter what battles we've had in our minds, in our hearts, the things we've wrestled with to make sense of, this is our opportunity to come before the table of the Lord and say, nope, I believe. Nope, I trust. I cling to Christ as my only hope in this life and in my death. I cling to Christ. I remember his sacrifice. I long for communion with him in his presence, receiving all of the benefits of his resurrection and his resurrected body. So this morning, if you are a believer, it's not a religious category, if you are someone who believes Christ is your salvation and your only hope of any salvation, then we invite you to this table. If you cannot honestly say that, if the questions that you have take a higher precedence over the truths of Scripture, just remain in your seat. Just wait. Ask the Holy Spirit through the scriptures to reveal himself to you so that you can say with the gathered congregation of the saints, I believe.
And so if you are among the believers, I want to invite you to come now to receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and in a moment we will take them together. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's pause for a moment and give thanks to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift. We thank you for the brokenness of your own son that brings to us healing and life. We thank you that, Lord, we have an anchor for our souls, as Hebrews tells us, that we can look to you and believe in you, have faith in you, Lord. And that faith, Lord God, is 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 just the beginning of our trust in you, that you draw us closer and closer through your intimacy and fellowship. And Lord, none of this would be possible without your broken body, without your shed blood. And so Lord, we pray that you would truly teach us what it is to thank you for this, to give you praise, which you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would, place your hands in a receiving position. I just want to speak this benediction over you in closing. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all the people, especially of those who believe. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.